Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of DevOps for Everyone. Today, I am joined on a podcast by Jim Robesco. Just before we get to the conversation, I want to mention and shout out our sponsor, InterQuest Group. So IQ, for those that don't know, is a professional staffing firm who cover tech, product, sales, risk, and so much more across the UK, Europe, and US. IQ success over the past decade has been built on successfully delivering contingent recruitment solutions to clients from various sectors such as fintech, SaaS startups, public sector, and so on. However, I think as we can all agree, we have recently faced something in the staffing industry that no one saw coming. So while delivering on ad hoc contingent vacancies is still a massively important part of IQ's business, they've now created a new unit to serve those clients looking to create talent rather than simply headhunt. So this new hire train deploy model essentially provides the most in-demand talent for a third of the price, while at the same time upskilling and professionally training these people in your exact tech stack, ready to be deployed within a few short weeks. So for any more information on that or to speak with a specialist consultant at InterQuest who cover tech, product or sales, reach out to me for an introduction. Now, onwards with the pod. Jim, thank you for sitting through that and being so patient. How's your morning going? Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's been been going great. Uh, how are you doing? Brilliant. Where is it you're based, Jim? I'm uh, I'm down here in Austin, Texas. So we're uh, we're sitting through about I don't know going on two weeks now, a uh, hundred degree Fahrenheit days. Um, so it's it's been cooking a little bit down here, but it's it's good to get out of the heat and get on the podcast with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, as you can see in the background, I'm actually in the office today. So a nice bit of aircon goes a long way. We've got about thirty. Deg- I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but we use Celsius, so we're about thirty degrees at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah. hot either way. Yeah, <laughs> either way we can agree that it's hot. So thank you for carving out time in your, your morning. First thing to do this for us. I really, really appreciate it. Been really eager to chat with you for a little while, actually. So for those listening, um, do you want to just give a, a sort of brief introduction of who you are, uh, who Striveworks is, and what problems you're trying to solve? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm Jim Robesco. I'm one of the co-founders at Striveworks. And you know, what we do is we're, we're an MLOps company that's really kind of focused on the this idea of how do we make the MLOps process transparent? You know, um, we can get more into it as we talk about it. But, you know, the, the kind of core obsession for us is making, you know, the, the ability to not just build and deploy, but also to, like, understand what models are doing in production as kind of transparent and painless of an experience as, as humanly possible. Um, so... You know, I've got to probably give a little bit of a caveat to, to your audience. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a data scientist by training. I got my PhD doing machine learning stuff, and it was a very um, emotional moment for me when I had to transition from MATLAB to kind of a little bit more kind of grown up languages and start actually doing, you know, real real data science and Python and other things. So, you know, to the to the deep infrastructure engineers who are already cringing hearing this, I apologize. I'll, I'll try to be as uh, as unignorant as I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So you're you're a guy that's got a, a background in data science. You're also one of the founders of of Striveworks. So where do you sit in terms of the the C suite? Yeah, so I'm I'm the CEO of the company. Um, you know, being being kind of on the operational side is is never something I necessarily kind of thought my career was was going to take me in. It's something that just kind of happened over the years, and it's. It's been fun, um, but you know my my passion always lies kind of in the engineering and the technology that we're building. 
So they must have seen a value when all of the C-suite was sitting down and saying, right, Jim, you're going to be the CEO. You're obviously the operational guy. You're good with numbers. You're commercially astute. They must have seen something in you to nominate you for the CEO title. <laughs> you know, the way I like to think about it, and, you know, you, you know, I know you, you work in, in, in staffing a little bit, you know, and I think there's this like really robust pattern, um, you know, that really high performing engineering teams are seeing, you know, they, I think. The, the preferred term that people start to use right now is that that T-shaped individual, right? Somebody who's got a really good kind of generalist base of skills and then has the, the passion and the drive to become truly excellent in one or two things, right? Um, I'm just that person who never really kind of grew the base of the T, you know, I'm just that kind of flat flat stick generalist. And so um, that's kind of had some, <laughs> has put some left and right barriers on my career over the years, I suppose. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Inch wide and a mile deep. That's what we try and do at Interquest as well. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. So in terms of uh, the problems you're trying to solve, essentially in a nutshell, is it as simple as trying to make the MLOps process more transparent for people? Yeah. And, you know, the, the way we kind of talk about that a little bit is I think, you know, if you kind of, you know, if you, if you first of all, like you ask the question, you know, hey, like what, what really is, you know, MLOps and, you know, the, the, the simplest answer, the, the great starting point is, is like, let's take those same kind of principles that we learned, you know, through, you know, through the software engineering kind of universe, you know, through the DevOps kind of set of principles that have really come to guide how we build and deploy software. And then we're going to add this new wrinkle into it, right? And the new wrinkle we're going to add into it is that, you know, software, relatively speaking, is, is fairly deterministic. And, you know, once we've built and deployed, you know, good software, we tend to have a pretty reasonable understanding of how it's going to perform. Um, when you when you ask that same question of a model, you, you're bringing in, you know, one new factor, and that's that's the data, right? And so models are trained on data. And when you deploy a model, um, you know, you're making a very strong assumption, right? The assumption you're making is that the production data that you're running across or interrogating this model with is going to look like the same data that you trained the model on, right? And that's an assumption that's, you know, use, uh, true enough to be useful, I like to say, but the real question becomes, we know that, you know, in the real world, data is always, relatively speaking, non-stationary. It always changes a little bit. And so how do you kind of, you know, take DevOps into this world where the target is always kind of moving, so to speak? And that's really the kernel, like the question, the challenge, you know, that the MLOps world is trying to, trying to answer. And, you know, typically a lot of times that breaks down into kind of what we think of as a two-day cadence, right? Day one, I'm collecting data, I'm cleaning it, I'm labeling it, I'm training with models, I'm experimenting with models. And day two, I'm trying to deploy that model. I'm trying to put it into a production environment, connect it to production data, and it makes sense of the world. And the way we think about it at Strive is, you know, we kind of put a little finger up in the air and say, actually, you know, it's a day, it's a, it's a three day problem, right? So day one is build the model, day two is deploy the model. And then day three is, you know, what happens when the world changes, right? Because at the point where you've deployed a good model, that's great. And then how do you know when the world around that model has changed and how can you rapidly restart and iterate the process? Um, you know, today that's a very data scientist kind of heavy thing. You know, it kind of revolves, involves taking that model back to the data scientists and having you know, him or her retrain the model, hand it to that deployment or that develop, you know, that, that software engineer and kind of restart the process. And where we want to drive this market and what we do with our platform is to really try to make that as, as seamless an experience as possible to, to make that whole thing kind of disappear. 
it's interesting when you talk about the kind of changing world as well in terms of DevOps, in terms of operations, in terms of implementing a process, right? Who would have foresaw COVID coming and the impact it had? So if you've got something in place, which is an automation pipeline, you know, something provisioning your data, something pulling data from 150 million data sources or whatever, you need something running smart in the background that can anticipate the kind of knock-on effect that COVID would have. That's, that's exactly right. You know, so if you were running a model in production for an airline, trying to forecast demand, you know, for tickets, trying to figure out what fuel prices are going to be, you know, COVID happens and, you know, the first order of magnitude, you're going to throw out all those models. You should just switch them yeah. off. They're done. They're worthless, you know, and we need to, we need to build new ones. And the, the question becomes, you know, how quickly can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned airlines there, and this is a nice segue into what I wanted to ask you next. I don't know if airlines are or if aviation is a big sector for you, but what markets do you serve and who would your typical target customer be? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, our kind of our typical customer, you know, they exist in highly regulated industries across the board. So that's things like finance, that's healthcare, you know, that's logistics and, and aviation is absolutely one of them. It's the public sector, you know. It's, it's all those kind of industries where, you know, in addition to, you know, you know, being able there, there's a lot of data um, in addition to kind of there's a huge desire to build those models that can in some way make sense or interpret the world and help us take action. There's also that challenge of, you know, not just explainability, um, but auditability. So, so, you know, my, my experience in this is, is heavily colored by an experience I had at a previous company. So after I, I finished my education, um, the first company I joined was a was a trading uh, company, a startup called Virtue Financial, and it is a high frequency trading shop. And you know, kind of my focus as a data scientist was building those models that that we would use, you know, in in production on a given day to to trade. And you know, and and we were we were remarkably efficient about this. And you know, just to you know, I guess you know, tell our story, um, I guess, brag a little bit. I don't know. Um, you know, like what we were, I'll, I'll be honest on both sides, but I was the data scientist and we didn't build good models, right? We didn't build these exquisite, beautiful models. We actually built fairly average, mediocre models. We built a lot of them. We were able to deploy a lot of them and we were able to monitor their performance very seamlessly so we could constantly stay current. So what we were really good at was ML ops before it was really kind of a defined term, right? And so that was super, that was super interesting to me. And that was kind of one of the key experiences I took from, from what we did at that company. You know, but to get to your question about kind of like where we serve as driveworks, you know, the interesting thing was, you know, what happened on day three? So if a regulator asked us a question, hey, you know, what, why did you do this trade? Or, hey, what does this model do? You know, answering that question was a very manual process. It would take, you know, hundreds of person hours to kind of stitch together all these automated processes in a way that was a human interpretable narrative, you know, that could demonstrate to that, to that regulator, to that outside body that what we were doing was, was responsible. And, and that was like a very interesting kind of data point for me. Um, you know, and as, as, as I looked at and as we, you know, Strive looked at, you know, the world, this world where AI applications are absolutely, you know, proliferating, um, you know, I kind of thought, hey, like there's there's like two real kind of take home messages here. Like one is, is like as they proliferate, you know, the the number of models in production is just simply going to exponentiate. Right. Like that's kind of a given. 
and the, the kind of target, you know, TAM, the total addressable market or the kind of focus of those models is going to narrow and narrow and narrow, right? Like that's one of the really cool things that's coming out of this kind of data centric AI movement today is this idea that, hey, it's maybe a little bit less about the architecture and it's a little bit more about making sure that the data that you're curating into a model is, is really kind of hitting the target in terms of what you want this model to do in production. So like a strong implication from that you, tends to be that there's gonna be a lot of models, right? That the, the gym model might be very different than the Joe model if we're trying to predict you know, what I'm gonna go on Amazon and, and buy later today, right? And so there's this exponentiation of models. And then with that, you know, there comes the, the, the question of, you know, when we start to leverage these models in, in, in consequential decision-making, right? If, we, if we're trying to say, hey, is this airplane good to fly? You know, hey, is this, this thing on a CT scan cancer or not? You know, we really owe it to ourselves to not just make sure that that model is high quality and performant and not just know why that model made the decision, but if a mistake ever occurs, be able to rewind the tape and provide kind of a mitigation strategy um, to, to anyone who might be affected. So I love I love lazy analogies. Um, it's kind of a, a bad habit of mine. So the, the lazy analogy I really like to use, you know, on this is when we look at kind of the way the cybersecurity world has evolved, right? So, you know, with apologies to anybody on the listening who's, who's an expert in this, I'm gonna butcher this, but you know, 20, 30 <laughs> years ago, um, I think it's fair to say that the way we thought about cybersecurity, you know, was this very binary notion, right? I've got a perimeter on my network, I've got firewalls, I've got endpoint security, I've got all these things. And so everything within that perimeter, you know, within this zone is safe and everything outside is scary. And the way we thought about cybersecurity was to say, how can we make that, that perimeter more and more robust and make sure that nothing bad gets in, right? And, and that was kind of the way we thought about it, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, and since then, right, I think the thinking in that space has matured a lot, um, a ton, really. And, you know, and we, we've kind of come to this, this notion that, hey, look, like breaches are going to happen. Statistically speaking, they are inevitable, you know. So we have to abandon this idea that everything inside is safe, everything outside is scary. And we have to ask the question, in a world where breaches occur, how can we quickly understand scope, contain it, and mitigate it rapidly? And I'm, you know, obviously, you know, um, most people listening are way ahead of me on this one. I'm kind of describing zero trust principles, you know, without without saying that the headline up front. And and our our kind of viewpoint, my viewpoint here on this one is that's actually like very analogous and very informative to the way we really need to think about AI models in production. Right? We obsess about saying is a model good or not. And we ignore the fact that when we put a model into production, even if it's, you know, 99.9% .9 accurate, that means that statistically speaking, one out of every thousand pieces of data that passes over it is going to make a mistake. So if I'm operating at enterprise scale and doing hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of, of interrogations of a model, I'm going to have thousands or tens of thousands of errors, right? It will happen from a statistical perspective. And so the question becomes then, how do you mitigate? How do you understand when errors occur? How do you mitigate that and understand scope? And that's what we really think the crux of the day three problem is for production AI. Yeah, I think when you're thinking about data science, when you're thinking about data mining and you know this whole sort of ecosystem of data, what I see is that as 
the world grows <laughs> as you know on people online as online presence grows as storage and power usage grows your data pool is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger so the room for error obviously gets bigger with that as well so does machine learning go some way to reducing that risk error you know, I think I think it does, you know, and I, I but I think, you know, the way it does is, you know, ultimately going to be, you know, um, through, you know, like what I'd say is like, you know, kind of like nested inferences, right? Like, you know, we're going to, you know, reach a point like right now, if you kind of survey the world of, of AI, um, you know, you see kind of like a lot of data from the world coming in, a model doing something with it and, and generating a prediction, right? And and that's it relatively you know relatively first order let's say kind of like raw data one inference go and you know we already know and, and there's a, such an exciting industry being built around you know feature engineering and feature stores you know the idea that you know not only am i taking raw data but i'm already know some of the kind of transformations or manipulations i want to do with that data and i think the inevitable next generation of this is going to be that your actual inferences from models, your actual model outputs are going to start looking more and more like alternative or other data sources that are inputs to subsequent models downstream, right? You're going to have this kind of nice, very complex, you know, very rich nesting of, of, of models talking to models, applications talking to applications. And, and that's going to be the way that we kind of get to that. I think what you're driving at is that kind of notion of like, how can I actually have, you know, real semantic understanding of of data, you know, how can I, how can I triage data? How can I pull things out of data in a way that's a little bit more scalable and efficient than a, than a human being having to just chug through it themselves? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, look, you know, when you're reducing human error and replacing it with like machine learning or artificial intelligence, that's fine. But I think you also still need to account for a certain amount of error or a certain amount of oversight because there's no perfect model. Absolutely right. Exactly. So, Jim, you gave us kind of um, an overview or, or like a simple overview of what MLOps is. I just wanted to go a bit deeper on that because it's not something that I've come across too much as a recruiter. Uh, I know, obviously, it's it's a thing. It's out there. But And you also mentioned as well that you first started working with MLOps before it was MLOps. So what, what, was, your, what was your earliest experience in that area? Yeah. yeah, so, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about. So my, my, my first company... Um, it's called Virtu Financial, and you know we were building um, and deploying a lot of kind of models for automated trading, market making of, of stocks, futures, securities, all that sort of thing. And you know it, it goes back to that question of data stationary. So what you do is you know you would you would bring in a lot of data, you know you would you would train a model, you would validate it, you know, and then you'd say, hey, this thing's ready to go. And then you know the reality is is that you know there'd be events big and small. That would just kind of constantly change that the the nature of that data, right? So if you were you know trading energy futures and there was a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, that would have a significant impact. Or if a oil pipeline you know in in Europe you know turned off or or there was a storm in the North Sea, that would have these significant impacts. And so you know the the question that was immediately thrust into our, in front of our face on day one was how can you be um, so those things are the easy ones, right? Because it's a big new headline and you know, hey, like hit the stop button, I got to retrain. 
you know, but there's there's subtle, you know, there's a lot of subtle things that maybe don't make the headlines, you know, whether it's, you know, changes in supply and demand or any of an, another million other things. Um, so, the, the, you know, the kind of the question we were faced with, you know, on, on any given day was really, you know, our, our data stationarity was was so short, you know, and so I think if I remember right, you know, what we ended up kind of getting to it at, at an operating tempo was that about 5% of our models had to be updated on any given day, which meant that over the course of a five-day work week, about a quarter of our models had been updated. And thus, you know, statistically speaking, within a month, you know, there was not one model in production that had existed in the exact same form the previous month. So it's just this incredible, incredible churn of, of models. And so we got good at it. Um, we got really good at it. And this is now, you know, kind of, you know, mid 2010s, you know, I think one of the, the most interesting kind of starter pistols in the MLOps world um, was when the team over at Uber published their paper on Michelangelo, which was their kind of machine learning framework that they used inside of Uber. And that, I think, really, really kind of snapped people's eyes to this idea that hey, you know, there is there is a, there is a discipline, you know, and a unique set of skills, you know, that couple your data scientists, your math PhDs, your, your mathematically skilled modelers with the software engineers and the DevOps kind of cadre that are ultimately putting these things into a production environment to interact with actual running applications. And there's a skill set around that. Um, so, so MLOps, you know, I mean, I think that's kind of, I think, historically speaking, you know, where people like to put the, the flag in the sand about the, the kind of birth of the industry. Yeah. You know, since then, we've seen a lot of really interesting differentiation, you know, folks working on the data side of things. How do I bring data into a system? How can I clean it? How can I label it? How can I engineer features? How can I serve those features reliably to a model? Um, obviously model experimentation. I've got all this great data. How do I build a model? How do I figure out which model's good? How do I train, you know, how do I abstract away all the hardware acceleration I need to train models? You know, because if you put a guy like Jim in front of a computer and say, hey, you know, use GPU or TPU acceleration, um, it gets really scary really fast. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and then kind of like, you know, and then there's the deployment piece, right? Like, you know, to go back to the DevOps analogy, if like one of the key best principles of DevOps is, is that ultimately you want your software engineers to be able to deploy the code themselves. You don't want them to have to throw it over a transom to an entirely different group, you know, extend that principle now to, to models. You know, how can I make a data scientist sufficiently empowered that he or she can deployed their model directly into production, right? Um, you know, and this kind of gets into, you know, a lot of kind of like interesting, you know, questions around, you know, container containerization, orchestration, and, you know, and all all those like really, really key enabling technologies, because, you know, if, if you've got me running a, a Kubernetes cluster, you're gonna have a bad time. Um, and, and so that's like, that's a non-trivial part of the MLOps process as well. And obviously we've kind of talked a little bit about once you got all that and it's in production, you know, how do you monitor, how do you audit, how do you ensure a responsible, you know, usage of, of that model? So that's a beautiful segue into my next question is where does Kubernetes fit into all of this? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, when, when you survey the, you know, the MLOps world, I think everybody's building off it now. Um, 
I think that's a, a very reasonable, just kind of like first statement. Um, and it's great, right? Like the, the kind of principles um, and the kind of, you know, essentially like design patterns of it actually very perfectly match, you know, what I just described is like a very like, uh, you know, like a very like, uh, not segmented, but like a very like service-based art, like it just kind of like naturally like falls into a kind of a service-based architecture because you can very much talk about these relatively discrete steps and there's even companies that are specializing within that. And so you see like a very, very nice, I think, um, extremely high rate of adoption. Um, you know, obviously it's not unique to our industry. I mean, I think we've seen, you know, this, this everybody, right? Like, uh, um, I'm on the bad side of the curve, but I think most people, you know, um, have seen a big shift, you know, into like Kubernetes as a managed service, you know, in particular driven by the commercial cloud providers, right? Um, it's hard, you know, and 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 they they charge you money for it, but but they make it easy. Um, I think, you know, it's like we look forward to it, you know, kind of from a from an application or a user perspective, right? That's where I come from. You know, I think one of the things that I'm most interested in understanding is is that you know, for us as, as model builders and deployers, um, there's an intrinsic interest in being able to push models, you know, to to the edge. You know, this is this is not just, you know, automated vehicles, but this is, you know, kind of IoT applications and everything else where latency matters, where connectivity cannot be assumed. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm really interested to see kind of how, you know, kind of the Kubernetes ecosystem you know, adapts to this kind of, you know, moving from the cloud to a kind of a hybrid cloud architecture. And, you know, obviously OpenShift, I think is like very much the leader there, but but that's a that's an area of like high interest to us to see where that develops over the next five years. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of kind of a high level overview in terms of, you know, Striveworks and what's next for you, where do you see the company going, the vision for the business, but tied in with the kind of open source cloud native Kubernetes orchestration tools. What's the the five year plan? Because you mentioned the sectors you work within, and I know you mentioned you know like good for the world as well. When you mentioned aviation, if flights are safe, you mentioned like curing Ill, curing illnesses. So, what's the the connection between Striveworks Kubernetes and the next five years? Where do you see the vision for the company? Yeah, absolutely. So, this this gives me like a little bit of a window to like explain something I said that probably made no sense at the beginning when we talk about like you know, disappearing ML ops, like what does that mean to make it transparent? And, you know, and, and I'll say like kind of what this means is, is that, um, you know, again, I kind of like leverage, you know, the, a little bit of what I'll, what I'll call like the infrastructure as code analogy. So I, I think, I'm, I forget my count. I, I wish there was a little counter in the corner of the screen, just the bad analogy count, but I'm up to like four or five now. <laughs> You got a um, limited number with me, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so the, the the reason why I say that is, is because, you know, like we've seen this marvelous, you know, abstraction um, of infrastructure, right? From this notion that infrastructure exists, you know, back in a in a server room or a closet and there's a cadre of, of 20, you know, IT personnel who, who you know, work day in and day out to keep the stuff alive and it's an eventful thing when a you know when a motherboard dies when a server dies you know and yada 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 you know we move from that to you know now there's kind of like one it person who you walk past and you think wow if 
if he or she, you know, ever got hit by a bus, the whole company would be screwed. And, you know, and now, you know, it's, it's you know, we, we take the ubiquity and the ease of use of cloud computing borderline for granted, right? Um, borderline. And, <laughs> and you know, and, the, and and so the question becomes, you know, for us now, you know, it's like, so first of all, like orchestration is going through that, right? Like we talked about that, especially with the shift to managed services. Like we're definitely seeing this go from like, you know, it's an exotic, it's a terrifying thing to we're seeing this cadence where it will become, I think, commoditized and almost taken for granted. Like, hey, you know, I didn't even know what I was doing. I just clicked the button and that spun a pot up somewhere and I just got the the outcome I needed. Um, so when we look at Strive and like what we focus on, like we're like, that exact same thing has to happen to data analytics, right? Like we have to get out of this mindset where there is an ivory tower of people building models in, in relatively, you know, in relative isolation in a very effortful manner. And the idea that we're building tooling to make the ivory tower easier and faster is useful right now, but ultimately it doesn't scale, right? If, if we need to have, you know, billions of models in production at a, to provide personalized outcomes. And you mentioned healthcare, that's such an important example, right? Like we already know, you know, from, from the genetic side of the world, from, you know, the outcome-based medicine side of the world, that, you know, personalized healthcare is really the kind of next wave in driving, you know, better health and longevity. Well, what does that mean for the, you know, for the models that we're gonna use to drive diagnoses, to help clinicians do their job, you know, better and faster? Well, it means that when I walk in the door at a doctor's office, like if we're just using the generic, you know, middle-aged male model, like it's probably not as good as if there was one that was built to me into my health, my health profile and my parameters. And, and to, to accomplish that, right, it means that today it's a talent challenge. There aren't as many talented data scientists as we need to build all these models. But ultimately, it's simply going to be something that needs to kind of you know, disappear within the systems, right? Like we already have systems that process information, whether we're in the doctor's office, whether we're on the trading floor, whether we're on, you know, whether we're in an aircraft maintenance environment and how can the natural actions of users, you know, um, essentially build and define and deploy those models that they do. So we've already got smart people doing smart things. How do we capture their behavior on platform and how do we turn that into models that help drive individual outcomes? That's what we want to do. See, I find it really interesting because talking to you about this and, you know, the, the possibilities that are out there, you're talking about, you know, good for the world. It's not just, you know, we're a SaaS company selling a SaaS product that can help technology companies. You're talking about real things that affect people. So where, where does this go? Where's the ceiling with this? You know, I'm, I'm a data scientist, so I have this kind of lifelong belief in like the power of, of, of analytics to actually help us like, you know, and, and truly the word is help, you know, not to kind of take away human decisions, but really to, to augment it. And so the bump, put one more on the lazy analogy counter, you know, like where I think the end goal of this for analytics is, is um, there's a company, um, they're like a, an online course, if anyone listening is really interested in like the practical part of AI, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. It's called Fast AI. And I love their tagline. It's so cool. Like they say, we want to make AI boring. Like I, I, I love that so much. It's, it's so profound. It's so on target. Um, so I can't use that one. And so what I'll say is, <laughs> is um, you know, 
we we ultimately like you know the analytics need to look like anti-lock brakes right in the sense of you know you're driving your car and you mash on the brakes you've got an incredibly simple user interface and behind the scenes the car's got to figure out a lot of stuff about like hey what wheels are slipping where am i getting traction where am i not you know tons of other stuff if there's an automotive engineer on the on the, listening to the podcast they're no doubt screaming right now at how yeah. often getting this um, but but at the end of the day, the point is, is a very simple user interface, a ton of very complicated math, and it just simply provides the outcome we need. Like the car stays in control, and that's where and that's where you know analytics need to go, right? Like right now, our, our analytics are very effortful. Um, you know, when you when you see them, um, typically speaking, it's kind of like you know you want to put air quotes around it. The AI box is doing something, and when you look at you know where this has really succeeded. Um, obviously, Google is is a great example. Amazon is a great example, right? Their ability to kind of capture the information that users input on their platforms and use that to drive customized and personalized experiences. That's the kind of model that we need to scale, and that's where we see this going. Yeah, I think it's you know it's it's such an interesting topic because if you're talking about those sorts of industries and you are really doing good in the world, I mean there's going to be such a use case for it, and I think those are the types of messages and like visions that people really get behind. Whether you're an engineer, whether you're an investor, whether you're someone already works at the company, do you know? So I think having those messages out there is uh, is key. Yeah, that's that's right, and it goes back to the data. You know, um, it's easy to capture a click on a website. It's easy to capture a trade in the financial markets. It's it's harder when you're talking about something like healthcare or an airplane, and and that's kind of the really nexus I think of this this data centric AI movement. Yeah, people have a connection to those things as well. So it's like a deeper conversation that you start to have rather than high level about, like I said, selling a SaaS product to that's a right. company. You know, that's exactly right. So in terms of, of the business, uh, I know from doing research, you've got some uh, big scale plans and I know you're talking about data scientists and kind of like the, the need for talent, uh, you're finding it hard, but what's the USP for the business? Why should people get excited about coming to work with you? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you touched on, on one thing already and I, I'll, I'll just amplify it a little bit, which is, you know, like we, we take a ton of pride in our work, like, you know, it has meaning to us, you know, both as, as individuals, you know, and as, as a group and as, as an organization. And, you know, and, and that, you know, and that, that's something that's special. And that's something that like, I personally like, you know, really, really embrace and, and love every single day when I, when I come into the office at Strive. You know, um, extending that forward, you know, we, we're, we're really, really big believers, you know, I'm, I'm really big believers, you know, in, in an environment where, you know, we want to create a world where like, you know, the, the organization, you know, it's kind of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And, you know, and what that means is, is that there's no, you know, kind of cult of the charismatic founder. Um, you know, we really challenge everyone here to be an active contributor, you know, not just kind of in our day to day tasks, but to the strategy and the vision of the company, because we know that, you know, by definition, what we're doing is so multidisciplinary, you know, we've got, first rate, you know, infrastructure engineers, you know, back end, front end engineers, data engineers, data scientists, all coming together to, to build this thing. And, you know, no one, no one part of that elephant by itself is really going to solve the problem that we're trying to get after. And, um, and so it, 
to, you know, to, to that person, you know, whether it's Striveworks or somewhere else, who's kind of looking for that next job or that next role, you know, that'd be my wildly unsolicited advice is like, you know, find a place where, you know, your voice is, is not just going to be valued, but demanded really like, you know, that if you don't have an active voice in the, in the, the strategy, the roadmap, what that company becomes, um, you know, ultimately you're going to be leaving something very fulfilling on the table. And that's something that we really kind of offer to our, to our team here. So as, as CEO, how active do you get when it comes to hiring processes? Um, I, I, I love being involved in it. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's really fun actually, because, there're just so many like really kind of cool talented people in the world and it gives me a chance you know like selfishly it just kind of gives me a chance to like learn things right like the best part of being involved in the talent process is when you ask somebody like tell me about a really hard project that you worked on that you really you know enjoyed i mean that's it's just so much fun because you get such really cool ideas such really cool stories and um i don't know i just i just get a kick out of that um so i, I so selfishly, I'm, I'm, I'm super involved. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's also just being part of a startup, right? Like we're, we're 60 people, um, we're really actively growing right now, but that just means that, you know, um, I like to, you know, I talk to everybody that comes through the door here and, um, wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. And I think that's important as well. And that's why I asked, because when you're in an interview process and you're having the CEO or the CTO or a COO join as part of the process, kind of like early on and ask questions like, tell me about a hard project that you found fun. You know, those types of things go a long way to actually getting your message across to people in, in quite a noisy world at the moment when you're talking about DevOps and Kubernetes and cloud native, you know, so it's important, I think, to have that kind of differentiator. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, hope, hopefully they don't ask me those questions because I can't give intelligent answers, but there's other people on the team who do, and <laughs> <laughs> hopefully they cut me a little slack. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the other C-suite guys are for, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jim, I feel like we've covered some some really pertinent topics, you know, talking about MLOps, talking about the kind of industries and sectors you solve and the kind of vision for the business, and especially the simple answer you gave to MLOps at the beginning as well, I think really really key to to this chat today but closing comments uh any last things for you that you wanted to mention about the company about hiring processes i mean what's your last comment for this pod wow you really you, you put me on the spot with this one um <laughs> <laughs> no um you know yeah and i, I guess the the, the kind of like the kind of bottom line is is you know that i'm just really excited and kind of what we're doing here and you know i think we're thinking about a really kind of impactful problem in a, in a, in a kind of different way. And so I, you know, if, if anybody's interested in, you know, maybe hearing a little bit more, I, I you know, I've, I've listened to some of the other speakers you've had on this podcast. They're all way smarter than me. And I assume your audience is of exactly the same ilk. And I'd just, you know, be, be humbled and enjoy the opportunity to get a chance to talk to some of those folks. Modest as well, Jim. <laughs> no, just just reality. <laughs> well, closing comments from me. I just want to say thanks so much for joining. Uh, it's been a long time coming. I know we've been going back and forth for a few weeks now, but uh, I've definitely learned something, especially in the kind of MLOps world as well. Um, stuff that I'm definitely going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole with and learn a bit more about. So, hopefully, listeners will do the same as well. 
this will be posted on on Spotify, and of course, I'll link you guys to it as well, and I'll tag you on LinkedIn. But yeah, as always, I, I really appreciate you coming on and spending your time with us. Yeah, appreciate you having me on, Joe. It's been a lot of fun. No worries. Catch up with you offline. Cheers, right. Jim. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.